reading is in Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property to reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, and he said to his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. As I was sitting in the car just before I came in, I suddenly realized that I hadn't actually preached for one reason or another for about two months. So I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if I could still do it. So if I'm a bit rusty this morning, I apologize. Um, but just as we gather, I wonder uh, how you're feeling about all that is kind of going on. It might be what's going on in your own personal life. It might be what's going on in the UK and around the world. Uh, in fellowships all across the UK, my own included, uh, the answer to that question will be, will be mixed. Um, because uh, as we kind of just seem to emerge out of COVID and are blinking, you know, our way out of the darkness into light, suddenly we're uh, confronted with new challenges, further plate tectonic upheavals, whether they're economic or personal or geopolitical or uh, social. 
And of course, there will have been things that we learned, you know, in, in, in those dark times that the Lord was teaching us, that he is sovereign, um, that uh, there is only one constant thing in an ever constantly changing world, and that is him, and he is the one to look to and hold on to. Maybe a humble submission to the fact that uh, though in our hearts we make our, part, we make our plans, actually it is the Lord who determines our steps. There's, we, we, we've just had to put a good deal of contingency in, into our thinking that it may not always work out the way that we plan, but the Lord is still sovereign and he will work out his purposes. But as we emerge from uh, these things, though we might honestly you know, be able to kind of uh, acknowledge that yes, God is sovereign. I trust his sovereignty. For some, secretly in our hearts, if we were pushed and if we were honest, we might say, yes, he is sovereign. But I sometimes wonder, is he good? What is his heart? Can I trust his heart with my heart? Or maybe you're feeling, uh, as one person described it a couple of weeks ago to me, a little bit like you've been deconstructed, pulled apart uh, but somehow, you know, in that deconstruction of you and your faith and your understanding about life, what is going on is God has retaken the parts of your life and helped you to have a, a bigger picture of him, one that understands that he can be found even in the dark crevices and dark places of life. He's to be found even there because you've, had, you've lived there, you've dwelt there for a time. But yes, you knew before he was to be found on the slopes and on the mountaintops, but you never knew in what way he was to be found there. Some of us, though, find ourselves, you know, maybe over the summer we've got a, a bit of a break and are, are feeling a little bit like we find green pastures, feel a little bit restored in our souls. But other of us here and in other fellowships, might, you might be new to either this church and are, are sort of thinking this, uh, you know, hoping that this could be a church family for you, or you're new to faith and you're seeking, you're asking questions, is, is God real? What is he like? What does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? What does it mean uh, to put my trust and faith in him? As we emerge... As we look, the, you know, the new uh, school term has already begun. The, this is a university town. The, the university term is beginning. You, as a fellowship, have uh, a relatively new venue, and that is creating new uh, uh, opportunities. But I guess as we emerge as churches, as we follow in behind the, the chief shepherd, we follow in at sixes and sevens, like I said earlier on. The broken and the somewhat, the, the, and the somewhat mended. We're seeking to move together as a church family, supporting one another a little bit like Jamie was talking about earlier on. Now, I've raised all these things, and I, 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 you know, I'm not going to be able to unpick them all. But the reason I raise them and the reason that I want us to look at this, uh, this passage is that I want us to draw back, and we might be asking questions like, uh, you know, is God good? Like Spurgeon, who wrestled with depression, said, you know, when you cannot trace God's hand, you can always know his heart. I want us to look at this passage really to see is, if, if we can pick up something that runs right through scriptures, which is the father heart of God. But pick up something of the beat of that in this passage. 
and that it might help us and, and, and encourage us and be something of a balm to our soul. And I do that, you know, um, because as a fellowship, certainly in Cornerstone, we're, we're wrestling that. And I do that as uh, someone who rep- represents a fellowship who loves you from afar. You may not know who we are, but we pray for you. And like I said earlier on, weekly, regularly, always looking for ways in which we can help you and support you uh, and encourage you. We are a sister congregation who wants to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. And, and, and so I'm glad to be able to, to come and say that to you this morning. But if you, want to, if you open up the, the, your Bibles, apps, uh, web pages to, to that passage that was read earlier in chapter 15. The, the, the context for the chapter is, in, is right at the beginning, verses 1 and 2. Uh, now all the tax collectors and sinners, uh, the kind of outcasts in society, if you like, were drawn near to Jesus. But the Pharisees, the insiders, the religious elite, the scribes were grumbling, saying, oh, this man receives sinners, for goodness sake, and eats with them. The question then at the beginning is, and, and in this, who shares the Father's heart? Who is the, whose heart is gripped by grace? Grace poured out from the heart of the Father uh, since time began. Whose heart is melted by the wonder of undeserved mercy, goodness, and kindness? Is it the religious experts? Have they got it right? Or is it this young pretender, Jesus? And in response, Jesus tells them three parables, all about things that are lost and found and far from grumbling over them. There is rejoicing, there's partying, there's singing, and there's dancing. We're going to look at just one of those this morning. It was read for us earlier on. So Jesus tells a parable about two sons. I'm nicking the outline from Tim Keller. And in it, there are three ways to live but only one way to find life. There's a kind of irreligious, secular, unbelieving way in the younger brother, a kind of religious way in the older brother, the gospel way, seems to be the heart of the father. So verse 11, Jesus said, so there was a man, he had two sons, and Jesus is painting this picture, hopefully, well, in their minds and hopefully in ours, of, of this kind of wealthy Middle Eastern setup. A father who has a considerable estate, two sons. Uh, you can, we'll see like many siblings are like chalk and cheese. The younger one, it feels like he's a little bit entitled, maybe somewhat self-absorbed. He's decided he's pretty fed up working for his father. He's no, he knows he's set to inherit once his father pops his clogs. He's no doubt been thinking, you know, oh, what am I going to do with this money? What am I going to, you know, when I get my hands on it? And then one day, verse 12, uh, the younger brother of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, you and I, as if you're a parent, might think, what on earth is he thinking? But, you know, let's, let's run with the, with the story. And then verse 13, not many days later, the younger son uh, gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The money, it's been burning a hole in his pocket, hasn't it? And he's, he's off traveling abroad, uh, Middle Eastern Magaluf, uh, by the looks of it. What's Jesus doing? He's, 
He's addressing, well, everyone in the audience, but in particular, half of his, half of his audience. In the story, this lad represents a kind of non-religious way of life or the, the way of self-discovery or the way of those who maybe didn't set out in this way but ended up in this way. And this young lad, well, you know, he's looking for happiness. He's looking for fulfillment, isn't he? And there's, there's nothing really wrong with that. But he's searching down the road of self-indulgence. He's searching down the road of pleasure, of self-discovery, of being Lord and soul determinant over his own life. And in our, in our day, in our time, that path is explored by many individuals. Maybe you walked down that path at one time. He's, it's people who are somewhat unsure if there is or a God or are convinced there is God. And so there's no great overarching truth out there. So any truths that there are are ones that we create for ourselves, our rules, our freedom, our happiness, our way. And objectively, I guess you could say that that, that idea has become enshrined in our, in our culture. The philosophical roots of that can be traced back to at least the 18th century in the, in the Romantic period, and seen in the poetry of Shelley and the like. He advocated uh, that true freedom, happiness, flourishing, uh, like this young boy's younger son is looking for, to be found in unshackling ourselves from societal traditions and religious morality. And over time, those ideas have been reshaped, reworked, distilled by and through others like the Genevan uh, philosopher Rousseau, the Austrian neurologist Freud, the German philosopher Nietzsche to our own day, where the fruit of that unshackling from societal tradition and religious uh, morality has come to bear so that today true human flourishing is sought at a popular level in pleasure, principally in sex and sexuality. And do you see how that kind of dominates a, a lot of our, 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 uh, our culture? Where morality is determined less by whether it is true, but whether it makes me happy or not. You hear that time and again in the songs and the stories of our culture. And the stories of those who um, come into our churches. Claire, young single mom in our, in our fellowship, said about her life before becoming a Christian, she said, I spent most of my life lost, broken, angry, struggling with addictions, trying to fill this deep need for love with booze, drugs, relationships, and always, was always left looking for more. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus uh, isn't surprised by those who are, uh, were in his audience then or, or, or today. You can imagine, though, the Pharisees listening on, kind of shaking their heads in disgust at this lad. But the seeking, the tax collectors, the sinners, the outcasts, leaning in, resonating with what he is saying, asking, longing, wondering if there are any good news in this story for them. Theologically, what Jesus is illustrating is what the Bible says elsewhere. You've been looking through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Uh, where, where it tells us that when we remove the creator from the creator's place in our lives, we don't replace it with nothing, but we replace it with anything, with, actually with created things. And we try to extract from those created things that what, what it can only truly be uh, satisfactorily extracted from God. 
We take good things, uh, we make them ultimate things, and we make them God things in our lives. We look for uh, fulfillment and for meaning and from purpose from them. And it, you know, good things like uh, work or a hobby or success or family or love, relationships. As I said, all good things in themselves, but when they became ultimate things, when they become God things in our lives, whilst they make uh, good servants, they make poor masters, and they can never give to us what we long for. We try to extract from them what ultimately, the Bible says, we can only extract from God. And they will leave us feeling, in the end, unsatisfied, always needing more. And sometimes, like this son, It is only when we reach the end of ourselves, whether in life, whether it's experientially because of of life's circumstances or or, or philosophically, because our undergirding framework doesn't satisfactorily answer life's big questions. Or even relationally, we just, we've we've come across somebody who's maybe a, a Christian in our workplace or in our neighborhoods or at the gym. Who's, who just somehow, their life seems different and it provokes questions to start revisiting what I believe. It's interesting in the um, last year or so, and I've mentioned some of them, but we've seen a sort of half dozen uh, born and bred committed atheists, not just from China, from Italy, from the UK, uh, saying similar things. That actually atheism... Though it promised much, actually in the end it proved to deliver little, it just didn't satisfactorily answer the big questions of life, the cries of the hearts. After one uh, service a couple of months ago, uh, one of the students who came up to me and said, do you mind if I chat to you? I'm like, well, no, fine, of course. He was somewhat hesitant. He said, well, this is only my second time here. He said, but, but you know, you've got to understand that I was a committed, like, atheist, Born and bred. Um, but I, but I've just, I, it, it's just not satisfying. I'm just not finding the answers, to, a satisfactory answer to life questions. But, but I have to ask, is it, is it normal when you come to church, when you sort of hear God's word, when you, when, when you hear the, you know, the message preached, for your heart to be like your chest to be on fire? Like, <laughs> sounds like the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. The Lord is seeking and saving uh, those who are lost, those who are in the out, uh, people are being drawn to him in that deep soul searching for satisfaction. But Jesus continued, verse 13, uh, that this young man squandered his wealth in uh, reckless living. And after he spent everything, I think this is, I'm quoting from the NIV here, the whole country, uh, there was a severe famine in the whole country, he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country uh, who sent him to the feeds to feed, fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying down the roads, that road that he, he traveled, Sure, there was pleasure. Sure, there was satisfaction. Sure, there were friends, but only for a time. But in the end, you will not find what it was ultimately you were looking for. And Jesus, the way that he describes him, he describes him firstly as as kind of financially bankrupt. He spent all the money. 
But that, that kind of bankruptcy, if you like, extends further. He's, he's morally bankrupt. He's been spending it on wild, uh, reckless living. Prostitutes, his brother says. Relationally, his friends are gone. F- familiar, familiarly, his family are far away. Somehow this boy who was meant to be a prince is now a pauper. A son is now a slave to sin. But Jesus also has him spiritually spent bankrupt. Pigs in Jewish culture were not kosher. They were ceremonially unclean. So it kind of signified that this young man was, was far, as far from God as he could possibly be in every conceivable way. And Jesus has him kind of sitting there contemplating himself pretty much beyond redemption, verse 17. But he came to his senses. He said, well, how many of my father's hired servants, slaves have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise. I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. So treat me like one of the hired servants. I'll never be a son, he's thinking, but I might be something lesser, a servant, a hired hand, a slave. The son left with riches is returning in rags. And so he arose and came to his father, verse 20. And as you look through this story, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the repeated words in the passage and what is the most repeated word. And I guess we suspect it might be son, but actually it is father. This parable is about what the father is like. What kind of God do we follow? What kind of God is he? What is this gospel that Jesus is proclaiming like? What responses are for the ones who have blown it? How does this father respond? What we will find at the heart of this story is the heartbeat of the father. And of the gospel which Christ has come to purchase. And if you're new to all of this, if this story is brand new to you, I envy you. Because here, coming up in a moment, is the spine-tingling beauty of the gospel that Jesus is bringing. And the faith that he calls us into. As we see the Father responding in outrageous, generous love towards his Returning son, verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. This son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. And they began to celebrate. What's Jesus conveying? Well, in those days, fathers did not run. Especially not to a disgraced family member. They did not embrace the unclean. They did not kiss the outcast. And yet Jesus paints his father doing all of those. 
Now the son comes, sorry for what he has done, recognizing his guilt and his shame. But he's barely able to get his sorry speech out. And the father's arms are out, hugging him, calling for clothes, a feast and a celebration. You know, this son, this younger son, saw for, saw for himself a life living in the shadows, the servant quarters, living under this dark cloud of guilt and shame, permanent reminder of his own past because of his circumstances. The father, however, sees for him a fresh start, a new life, a new identity, shaped and fashioned by love, by grace, by mercy, released from the past, released from his guilt, and released from his shame. And that interplay between guilt and shame is quite interesting. If, if guilt is about um, you know, what I have done, shame is about who I am. It carries with it the idea of of kind of being exposed, uncovered for everyone to see that you can't do anything about. It's kind of like if you, you know, you're getting changed down at the beach and you've got the towel up and you're at an important juncture and the towel falls down and you're kind of exposed and the immediate thing is you want to cover yourself up. To feel under shame just feels like you're exposed and you, you want to cover yourself. For many... A past like this younger son, or like Claire I mentioned before, it leaves a profound sense of of worthlessness, hidden guilt or shame, of of, of kind of exposedness about the things, the life that they lived and what they had done. And they live a little bit under the shadow of that. But what does the father do to an exposed son? He covers him. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. A ring signing on his finger, a sign of sonship. This is a new start. He was dead and now he's alive again. Key repeated phrase. The old is gone, Paul says to the Corinthians, and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. What will Jesus' gospel do to these ones listening in who've blown it, who are questioning, is there any good news here for me? It's a new start. It's forgiveness. A new identity. A cover over the past. A forgiveness for their guilt. Made new. So in this parable, the Father is is God. God the Father, the warm-hearted, rejoicing, extravagant welcome to his returning son is the welcome he gives to those who will turn around from the life that they're living to turn in him in what the Bible calls repentance. It means turning around towards him to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And how, how, can, how could the Father do that? How can the Father do that? Just forgive the past? Well, Jesus has in here a costly love. This, this cost him the father half his estate and more. How will it cost God for us? Well, for the answer to that, we have, need to go to the end, not of this story, but of the gospel story. Where Christ on the cross does what? Well, what, we, what you're learning about in Romans, he does the great exchange taking from us what is ours and upon himself and giving to us what is his on ourselves. 
The Bible describes it in so many different ways. Let me give you three. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, its uncoveredness, and now is seated at the right hand. He took on our shame, our uncoveredness, so that we could be covered over by his robe of righteousness he purchased for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin uh, on himself and gave to us his righteous right standing with God. He paid the debt for our sin that we could not pay, so that we could be adopted as children of God. 2 Corinthians 8.9, for you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich, rich in mercy. The Bible tells us we deserve hell, but Christ through the cross gives us heaven. We deserve condemnation, but Christ through the cross gives us the divine commendation. This is my son whom I love. We deserve nothing, but he gives us everything. And he gives it to us like the sun, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because he delights to give it. Pure, unmerited, undeserved love. The Bible calls grace. And to be honest, when I think about the heartbeat of the Father, when I think about, you know, just everything else that's going on and all the the burdens that we carry and how we're going to move forward... It is this return to the very heart of the gospel and the heart of the Father that gets me every time. That is the heart of the God we worship. That is the rhythm of the scriptures that, is, that can echo around the, every chamber in our hearts. This is John Ellis likes to say, you know, he got me at hello every time. And if you're looking into this for the first time, this is actually unique to Christ amongst all the major religions of the world. C.S. Lewis was asked, oh, you know, in what way is Christianity unique compared to the other religions? He said, that's easy. It's grace. What did he mean by that? I mean, all the other major religions of the world, you have to work your way to heaven. You have to merit it. Only in Christianity has God done the meriting work for you, and all you have to do is receive it through faith. To receive it like the sun, turning around from the direction we'd be going Godwards, saying sorry for the past, understanding that Christ died on the cross for our sin, and putting our faith in him, the risen and reigning uh, Savior and Lord of our lives. And you wonder if Jesus paused at the end of verse 20 to look around to see if any of the faces were gripped by what he was saying, the good news that was available to them. You see, his is a living word. And maybe you're here this morning and, and this message has gripped you for the first time. You've been thinking about Christ and you're thinking, I want, you know, I think I want to follow him. Well, maybe today's the day to put your trust in him. If that's you, please speak to somebody after the, the fellowship and they can talk you through that. But of course, there were the others in the crowd who may have been thinking, well, I certainly uh, haven't blown it, and I certainly don't uh, need that kind of attention. I've deserved, uh, I've earned what, I've, what, I, what I'm being given. 
I'm religious. I'm a good person. I've made it you know, my own way and acceptable to the Father. Surely I don't need to come the same way as this wretched son. You know, often preachers stop at the, the good news of Jesus and get so excited and think, it's amazing, and forget to talk about the older son. But actually, you've got to really deal with the older son because that's, you know, Jesus mentions him. And there's some symmetry in the passage with, with him. Verse 25, now the older son was in the field and uh, he, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. The elder son uh, has chosen this religious, this moral way. He's been out of the fields. He's hearing, I don't know, Abba, Ren Collective, whoever it is, you know, blaring. He's told his brother has returned and he's raging. Verse 26, he called one of the servants and asked uh, what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And he was angry and refused to go in. But his father came out and entreated him. But he is angry. He doesn't want to go in. He comes, his father comes to him, but he's livid. Why? Verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, um, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served. Actually, the Greek is literally slaved for you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. What's Jesus conveying? Well, the, the clue is in the reverse wording and circumstances. Notice it is the father's initiative who comes out to him in the same way as he went out to his other son. This gospel, this, uh, this heart of the father is for him as well as for the other son. But he refuses it. Why? Well, the younger brother knew that he'd blown it. He didn't deserve his father's mercy, was prepared to be a slave, work, if you like, never really sure if he was able to regain his father's love but readily received mercy when it was shown, grace when it was shown, love when it was shown, and the restored relationship and sonship that was given. The brother, however, felt that he had worked, slaved, deserved his father's favor. He could have been a son, but he chose to be a slave. His religious moral heart cannot accept the gospel of grace like the Pharisees, tutting, grumbling in verse 2, a stranger to grace and to mercy. This son was, if you like, in the church. He was on the estate, but was no closer to the father than the younger brother was even in a distant country because he wasn't receiving the grace that was available to him, the gospel. He was working on this gospel of works. What do I want to draw from that for us this morning? As we move forward, whether it's here at Grace Church or ourselves in Cornerstone, as things open up, new opportunities present themselves. Unless the beauty of the gospel is shaping us, actually we can develop that same shriveled heart of the older brother. Our decisions are made out of cold duty. And that, you know, that can happen. But we must strive to operate out of gospel-shaped delight. Think of, if you're a youth, all, you know, the pals are getting blutered, like the younger brother. 
all around you. And, you know, it's right to say, you know, that's not for me, thanks. And you can say it in the spirit of the older brother, or you can do it with a heart shaped by the gospel, knowing that actually you're secure, not in what your friends think of you, but in what Christ thinks of you, and that he has died for you, and he's demonstrated his love for you. And now you are free to live in the security that he offers. And you refuse because actually you have a deeper love in your heart, but also you want to say there's another way. And that can take time, and that can be hard when you're at school. But I encourage you, my older son, for six years, was friends with, a, with his sporting pals. And it's only in the seventh year of friendship, and we've prayed over the, around the dinner table for them for many years, Three of his pals decided to come to church the other week, now that they've all left school, to find out, is there something here? As adults, uh, service in the church of one another, church growth can be tiresome. New people coming in, new people, be, people can be welcomed. You've got enough stuff going on in your own life, and you think, oh, I've got to, you know, try and open up some more space for, for, for new folks, new conversations. Things change as, as a new venue creates new possibilities. How do we not become like that older brother's heart, shriveled by gracelessness? Str- revisits the heart of the gospel, the heart of the Father, and let the gospel reshape and enlarge your heart as you're reminded how you are loved, that you can be loving. Have you been shown mercy, that you can show mercy? that you've been shown kindness, that you can show kindness. We are not duty people, but we are delight people, gospel people. And in God's kindness and goodness, a new venue has been provided for you will create new opportunities and new people. May the beauty of the gospel refresh your soul daily. May you enjoy a new closeness with the Lord, enriching your soul as you remember just what he has done and brings delight to your heart so that you find delight in seeking to serve him and in seeking the lost and welcoming the newcomer, our hearts beating, echoing the beat of the Father's heart. Let's pray.